Okay, welcome everyone uh, to the RAI. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jay Sexton, the director here, and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, our speaker today for our event on the state of U.S. higher education. Now, in recent years, it's become commonplace to hear about the various ways in which the United States is a declining power. For me, the most distressing of these decline narratives is that which concerns higher education. One doesn't have to look too hard or turn on the TV for too long to hear many arresting figures and statistics that are in circulation. Take graduation rates. Uh, in the glory days when I was an undergraduate student in the United States in the early 1990s, the U.S. was number one in graduation rate. Today, it stands at eighth. There are costs as well. By one estimate, cost of higher education has doubled in the past 20 years, with student debt mostly picking up the slack, up to an estimated 1.2 trillion, a threefold increase in the last decade. These costs are important in a number of ways, but they're particularly important because they have social implications. And once seen as a facilitator of social mobility, Many argue today that higher education is an impediment to it. Most distressing of all are the studies that question the payoffs of higher education in the United States. The payoffs not only in a financial sense, the financial return uh, that one reaps over the long term on the investment in tuition, but also the intellectual payoff. Some studies have suggested that student performance um, in complex reasoning skills and critical thinking has not improved from the time a student enters the university to the time they leave. Now this is a very gloomy way to introduce our <laughs> RAI senior visiting fellow. Um, and so I should say first that uh, everyone be happy. This is our last Friday before we set the clocks back. And it gets really dark here uh, for the next five months. So let's enjoy that as a ray of sunlight. But also hopefully our speaker today will shine some light on the questions that have been raised about higher education. He might interrogate these assertions, but most of all, he might look forward to how some of these problems might be countered. So let me introduce our speaker, Professor Bob Scott. He is the RAI Senior Visiting Fellow. He's a professor of sociology and anthropology, as well as a leader in U.S. higher education administration. Uh, he is here working on a project, a book, actually a couple of books, about U.S. higher education. And he's as well as positioned to do this as is anyone. He's the only person of whom any of us are aware that have led three different types of higher education <coughs> entities. First, a state coordinating board. He was a senior officer of the New Jersey and Indiana State uh, Commissions on Higher Education. Second, a public university. He was for 15 years president of Ramapo University in New Jersey. And third, president of a private university. He was president of Adelphi University for 15 years, just finishing a very successful tenure uh, earlier this summer, for which we all congratulate him. Under his leadership, Adelphi embarked upon a successful facilities expansion program, 
It appointed 250 new faculty. Faculty always like to talk about new appointments. Uh, it witnessed the tripling of its invested funds. Its enrollment increased by 50%, and it was recognized in various league tables and rankings. So the plan for today is this. Uh, Professor Scott is going to talk for 45 minutes. Uh, we're going to break for tea. We're not going to have questions after this. We're going to break for tea or coffee. We're going to come back in 15 minutes, and we're going to have a panel, uh, a panel which will discuss some of the themes raised in the paper, and then we'll have a, a Q&A with the audience, a discussion, and then we will break for the Oxford tradition of a wine reception. So let's welcome Professor Bob Scott. Thank you, Jay, and thank you for giving one-third of my talk. That was very helpful. <laughs> So I don't have to talk about what I abhor. Uh, and don't be uh, astonished, this is very large type. <laughs> so this is a real privilege, and thank you very much uh, for this uh, honor to be here. Thanks to all of you for coming, including a uh, 2015 graduate of Adelphi University who is studying in Spain and flew here to be here this afternoon. So Jenna, I am uh, grateful for your enthusiasm. In 2010, I published an essay uh, that I called The Modern American University, A Love Story. And in that, I described what I admire, what I abhor, and what I anticipate. Uh, today, I'll offer some observations on these topics, taking these points, today's points, from a much larger manuscript that I am developing into a book and expanding on what I admire, uh, what causes me great concern, uh, what I anticipate, and I'll add a little bit about what I hope for. I have to acknowledge my uh, colleagues and friends, uh, Gail Mello and Daryl Greer, with whom I discussed these topics earlier, and to my wife, Carol, for her very helpful comments. Uh, it is a fair question to ask about the observer uh, if you are to listen to his observations. And I think Jay gave a good uh, introduction to my background there. I would add I was the first in my family to go to college. Uh, I was awarded scholarships. I worked at two jobs uh, getting through Bucknell University. And I was very fortunate that when I graduated, I owed $400 to an aunt who had loaned me the money. Uh, and that was it. There is much to admire in higher education in general, although I will focus my comments on the US experience. Higher education, especially universities, includes these three features. It is a curator of that which was created and is known, whether on paper, clay, or disks. It is creator of the new, whether facts, interpretations, or fanciful musings, and it is a critic of the status quo, asking why and why not. A, a college receives a public charter and is more than information alone, like a library or a museum, more than belief alone, like a church, and more than emotion alone, like a club. It is all of these and more. The vision of the university, and here I include four-year and two-year colleges, is dedicated to the search for truth and to the preparation of students to be able to distinguish between and among empirical evidence, epiphanies, 
an emotion or a superstition. The goals of higher education have been to widen access, especially at the undergraduate level, to students of all ages and backgrounds, whether enrolled full-time or part-time, and to promote excellence in teaching and research for the common good. In the beginning, in our country, it was thought that public higher education should be free. And for many years, major systems of higher education, such as those in California and in New York City, were indeed free. State and federal financial aid programs came later, although private institutions had been raising endowed and expendable funds to provide scholarship assistance for the children of ministers, teachers, and others for many years. Excellence in graduate teaching and research have been priorities, and we can think of the numerous ways in which university-based research in the life sciences, physics, history, and archaeology have advanced our well-being and our understanding of what it means to be human. Higher education in the U.S. has a rich history of evolution and expansion, both in borrowing from other countries, including this, and developing new models. There are numerous types of institutions and multiple categories of students. As elsewhere, U.S. higher education is distinguished by its founding characteristics. Colleges and universities in the U.S. were founded by visionaries and visionary leaders. Harvard was the first college, founded in 1636, with a mission to provide, quote, a learned ministry to the new country through the, quote, transformative power of the arts and sciences. By the way, Balliol, Merton, and University College were already 400 years old when Harvard was started. The University of Chicago was founded in 1890 to provide opportunities in all disciplines to students of both sexes. It was to be a modern research university with English-style undergraduate education and German-style graduate and research programs. Wellesley College was founded in 1870 with a focus on the liberal arts to, quote, prepare women who will make a difference in the world, not to be ministered to, but to minister. The first community college grew out of an adult, higher edu adult education program at Joliet, Illinois. The network of public two-year colleges blossomed in the 1930s, flourished still more following the Truman Commission in 1948, and developed still further in the 1960s, and there are now some 1,200 of them. The City College of New York was started in 1847 as the Free Academy, where the founders said, quote, the experiment is to be tried whether the children of the people can be educated and whether an institution of the highest grade can be successfully controlled by the popular will, not by the privileged few. My own university, Adelphi, was conceived in 1895 by a group of suffragists, abolitionists, and free thinkers about religion who wanted to create a great university in Brooklyn that provided equal opportunity for men and women. There are many more such stories, of course, of colleges started for different groups, especially women, Catholics, Jews, and African Americans, because they were generally excluded from the mainstream institutions 
those examples to the contrary notwithstanding. I admire the vision, if not always the courage, of these founders and the many others who started colleges in small towns and emergent cities across the country. The increasing number of students attending high school, the need for teachers, ministers, and doctors, and the growing need for scientific agriculture, mining, and manufacturing all fostered the creation of new colleges. Just as in earlier times, such as the Northwest Ordinance, federal initiatives for population dispersal to the West fostered new institutions. By the time President Lincoln signed the Morrill Land Grant Act in 1862, there were some 200 colleges in the country, most of them private and church affiliated. The land grants bestowed by the federal government were sold and used by the states to start new schools or to turn the money over to existing state or private colleges in order to create more schools, especially devoted to agriculture and mechanic arts. And what is not generally known is that among those receiving land grants were institutions that were named Yale, MIT, and Cornell. Colleges and universities have been instrumental in the development and application of new technologies, probably second to the military with which there were many contracts. They are anchor institutions for community development. They are those that provide a service or a product of which all can be proud. They are generally sensitive to the environment. Uh, they generate income and payroll taxes for the local community and provide many other benefits to their region. And these and much more uh, is what I admire about higher education. It is the historic focus on expansion of opportunity, the commitment to high quality, the combination of government policy supporting higher education for a public service, often at no charge, private philanthropy with a commitment to the advancement of the citizenry, and the mission to serve the growing nation that helped make higher education in the U.S. the gem that it is in so many ways, but not all. The vision described above has not been fulfilled in all ways. For in addition to the variable of population, as in population dispersal, as an influence on higher education institutional location and growth, two other variables have been very powerful. These are politics and public investment. In the United States, as elsewhere, the original sins of racism and slavery, instruments of public policy and investment, denied African Americans access to higher education. It is true that a few freed slaves and their children gained access to Middlebury in Vermont, Bowdoin in Maine, Amherst in Massachusetts, and Oberlin in Ohio as early as the 1820s and 1830s. However, it wasn't until the second Morrell Act of 1890, the first was 1862, that opportunities really grew with federal appropriations specific to support predominantly African-American colleges in the still segregated slave states, which continued to exclude these students from the original land-grant institutions. When there is political support and public investment, 
access can increase, although much of this access was limited by the slave states to separate and unequal education. This is part of the 400-year legacy of racism and slavery that continues to this day in terms of income, housing choices, family wealth, access to good schools, and a tradition of college attendance. Therefore, given my belief that higher education is an instrument for democracy, one of the features that causes me most grief is the increasing evidence that legislators and their backers lack a commitment to access for those who come from less advantaged backgrounds. For example, the federal Pell Grant program was designed to provide tuition assistance for families at the median household income or lower. Yet today in the United States, a child born into a family in the top 25% of family income has a nearly 90% chance of graduating from a four-year college. While a child with the same native ability, born into a family whose income is in the lowest 25%, has less than a 10% chance of earning a bachelor's degree. The Pell Grant threshold is set at $50,000 per year and below. Yet when we look at the percentage of students receiving Pell Grants at our most prestigious universities, the proportions are quite low. For example, at the top 25 universities as ranked by US News and World Reports, the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, and the University of California at Berkeley led the list with 39% and 35% Pell Grant recipients enrolled, respectively. Well, one might say, UCLA, UCLA and Berkeley are state institutions and charge lower tuition. Yes, but they are highly selective in enrollment and want the most promising students, just as well-endowed private colleges do. At Yale, with an endowment of $2 million per student, Pell Grant recipients represent 12% of the student body. At Stanford, with $1.4 million per student, Pell Grant recipients represent 15% of students. Yet Vassar, with a much lower uh, endowment of $406,000 per student, has 25% of its students receiving Pell Grants, as does Adelphi, with only one quarter of the Vassar endowment. <laughs> if we were really committed to educational opportunity, we would see remarkably different results and more examples of free tuition. Those examples that existed in California and New York are long gone, and it seems policymakers do not want to be reminded of that history. Another feature that causes me anguish is the student loan debt. Federal student loans were started under the National Defense Education Act in 1958, and the program has grown in various ways since then. In 2007, following reductions in the program, and cutbacks to uh, other federal programs in order to, uh, scholarship and loan programs, in order to increase funding for the Pell Grant program, banks and other non-bank lenders began offering variable, variable rate loans with risk pricing, with some interest rates at 16 to 18%. It was a combination of these so-called alternative loans 
The dramatic increase in students enrolled in private for-profit schools and colleges, the fact that student debt may not be canceled through bankruptcy, and the fact that the federal government did not reduce the interest rates on student loans to the prevailing commercial rates, that is, they charge twice as much as the commercial banks for a mortgage, that caused the surge in total student debt. Now, while the average debt load for a recent graduate of a private nonprofit college is just over $30,000, which is what it is at Adelphi, and that is a lot, media headlines about six-figure student debt do not tell the complete story. This is voluntary debt. There is no reason for anyone to graduate from an undergraduate college with $100,000 or more in debt. Those who do, do so voluntarily, usually in order to pay tuition and attendant costs necessary to attend what they consider to be a more prestigious college than the one that is more affordable. But only 0.2% of student borrowers have $100,000 or more in debt. One would not know that from the media. Of those, 90% are in graduate school or advanced professional school like law or medicine. Some 40% of that $1.2 trillion of student debt is for those graduate students and those in law and medicine and other professions. And they average close to $60,000 of debt. Now, for these, these comments are not intended to diminish the negative effects of student debt on college going, degree completion, employment choices, and purchasing decisions, such as for housing and automobiles. In this fall, 2015, some 58% of United States four-year colleges and universities reported that they failed to reach their enrollment targets. And many admissions officers cited student debt as a major cause. For these reasons and more, I'm happy to see some U.S. presidential candidates uh, talking about a free community college education or some other uh, vehicle for providing debt-free education. Another source of anguish is found in the student loan default rates, partly induced by unmanageable debt and the fact that students may not discharge their debt through bankruptcy. The default rate has spiraled upward because of the practices of some of the large private for-profit colleges. For example, this past summer, the latest time data are available, the average student loan default rate for public colleges and universities was 13%, and for private nonprofit colleges, 8.2%, while for for-profit colleges, it was 22%, more than twice as much. This is not a good way for college students to begin their adult lives. Still another source of anguish is the dismal record on graduation rates. Of 100 high school graduates, about 70 will graduate from high school. 49 of the 70 will enter college, and 25 of those will graduate with a four-year baccalaureate degree in six years. Some of the delay in average graduation rates is due to cuts in support to public institutions 
and a subsequent decline in the offering of the courses needed to complete degree requirements. Some is due to the number of hours students have to work each week to pay for tuition, auto insurance, and other payments. And some is related to inadequate preparation. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, some 60% of first-time, full-time students who began seeking a bachelor's degree at a four-year institution in 2007, eight years ago, completed the degree by 2013, 60% by 2013. Furthermore, the six-year graduation rate was 58% at public institutions, 65% at private nonprofit institutions, and 32% half at the for-profits. Now, at two-year institutions, and maybe Dr. Mello will talk about it, the rates are calculated differently, and I don't think they are as important uh, for the policy discussion. They are very important because they enroll about 45% of all undergraduates. But to talk about average graduation rates at community colleges is complicated because so many leave before they've earned a certificate or a degree. 50% of students in four-year colleges started as a community college, and many don't stay to receive their degree. But there are several caveats about graduation rates. So the data cited are for those who entered as first-time, full-time students. And we know that about 38% of students at four-year institutions are enrolled part-time. So that doesn't cover everybody. The second caveat is this. The data are for those who completed a degree at that institution. Yet we know that about 12% of those who complete a four-year degree do so at an institution other than the one where they started. At public institutions, graduation rates are affected by declines in state funding. While historically, the states provided more funds to institutions than the federal government, the declines in state funding to, since 2008 and the increase in federal support for Pell Grants and veterans' education benefits have reversed this pattern. Between 2000 and 2012, when the number of students in higher education grew by 45%, state revenue per student fell by 37%. The decline is due not only to the economic downturn, but also to the virulent anti-tax ideology that swept through the states and the federal government. As part of the anti-tax and starve the beast themes, private sector groups adopted what I call voluntary taxation, whereby they use tax-deductible charitable donations to influence tax policy, promote alternatives to neighborhood public schools, and advocate for more for-profit colleges. I think the proposals for free public community college education should be supported. However, the for-profit interests are advocating that uh, so-called boot camps should benefit too. And for-profit colleges are only one way that corporate interests intersect with public funding for higher education. Another is the push for so-called public-private partnerships. These can be good, and I certainly have had many partnerships uh, 
with companies and other organizations during my presidencies. But often, they divert the college from its core mission in order to gain a new source of revenue that is neither scalable nor replicable. The AT&T sponsored low-cost online master's degree in engineering is a, at Georgia Tech is a very good example, often cited as the future of uh, online graduate education. Cheaper, $6,000 instead of over 30. Well, if there was an AT&T behind every program with millions of dollars to support it, that might be the case. A corporate mindset can also influence higher education through the university boardroom. The goals of a business are for profits now, even when it means casting aside time-honored products whose popularity has waned. This can be short-term thinking, at least for those of us in higher education who have seen the waxing and waning of population, popularity of various major disciplines. The mission market balance must be kept in check. But with boards of trustees dominated by those from the fields of banking and finance, we see that the market is often the more important variable in the equation. Another source of influence is the private philanthropic foundation that through its grant programs can encourage the development of select disciplines and programs of study about certain topics and areas of the world, which may be of priority this year, but not next. And so therefore, there's a lack of continuity. Finally, although there is more that I lament about contemporary higher education, I must discuss tuition discounting and the rise of so-called merit scholarships. Tuition discounting is used to give the illusion that the college or university is awarding the candidate a scholarship. Bob, you have a $10,000 scholarship. Last year, the average rate of colleges doing that by discounting the tuition, Bob, we don't have $10,000 to give you. We're going to discount your tuition $10,000. Well, the average rate last year uh, was 54%. That is to say, the, on average, colleges charged the net of 54% of the printed published tuition rate, thus reducing the net revenue needed to pay salaries, pay the light bills, etc. This is not sustainable. Discounting is used because most colleges do not have sufficient endowment income to one, provide the amount of money required to supplement state and federal funds to meet the financial need demonstrated by a family, and two, to provide an award and recognition or some, of some talent or meritorious attribute. Such awards, merit awards, started with athletic scholarships. Everybody's heard about athletic scholarships, and most people just have accepted that as, all right, that's a fact of life. But then the orchestra got in the act, and they wanted to get a noble player or two, and so they decided that we needed to have merit scholarships. And then with US News and World Report and other ranking uh, organizations calling attention to SAT scores, colleges used merit awards to buy higher SAT averages. I was at a, a reception for new students, or for uh, senior students, uh, a couple of years ago, talking with one of the student leaders, asking, uh, is your brother going to come? 
because I had met the family. And he said, well, he's, he's choosing. He was told by College X that if he raised his SAT scores by 200 points, they'd give him $1,500 more in scholarship. That is a misuse. One of the unintended consequences of discounting and merit awards is that parents want to negotiate the amount of scholarship using the award letter from one college to convince another that it should increase its scholarship award, thus turning college into a commodity like a car. There is more to be said about what causes me anguish, especially about government intrusions, frequent references to the business model being broken, and the lack of interinstitutional collaboration on degree programs and community improvement projects. But those are topics which will be covered uh, more completely in my full monograph. So what is it that I anticipate? And a little bit of what I hope for. The forces shaping the future of higher ed in the United States are known. Surely they include demographic shifts, especially with regard to the number of high school students, uh, the age of potential college goers. There is no way we're going to achieve our graduation goals by focusing on young people in elementary and high school. It's going to have to include adults going back. So the age of potential college goers, the number of students who will be the first in their families to attempt host high school education, the income and employment status of students, student status, whether full-time or part-time, and of course, whether they are residential, commuter, or online enrollees, and their career focus. There are also global forces, including the movement of students and faculty between and among countries, information and data moving freely, and institutions starting campuses and partnerships with universities in other countries. We see that in many ways increasing. Uh, I've always been loath to do it, but we can get into that in Q&A. Some forecasters have proposed varying models of institutional development for the future, including scaling back. There's a news story this week about two colleges that dramatically reduced uh, their freshman enrollment in order to reduce their cost structure. More specialization, seeking a niche, uh, whether in a population area or for a degree program. Some going fully online, which we've seen, and then hybrid versions combining elements of all types. Another force with which to contend is the changing priorities for public funding. And this affects both public institutions directly and also private institutions, because many states have programs uh, to provide capital construction money for private colleges. Uh, and also have scholarship programs to assist students going to private colleges. So public funding applies to both. But with prisons and pensions squeezing the funding for higher education, we must find more effective ways to change the cost structure of colleges and universities, especially as we examine tuition discounting and merit aid, and do much more to advocate the public benefits of higher education. We must also find new sources of revenue beyond that which students can bring without diminishing institutional commitments to purpose and mission. Finally, a major force for change is found in the technological breakthroughs that can support teaching and learning, as well as back office processing functions, as well as prompt changes in policies 
for student course credit transfer. Does this MOOC taken from MIT count as transfer? Is it advanced placement? Uh, colleges have, are dealing with that. New forms of credentialing, and I don't know how much you've read about that, but we hear a lot about more certificates and different ways of acknowledging the completion of knowledge accumulation and much more. Online learning can be used for distance education or to support blended courses that combine online with in-class instruction and so-called flipped classes in which students use online and other resources prior to class time and then use in-class time for discussion and group projects. And we've already seen how communications technologies kind of facilitate student and faculty interactions. The faculty members here at Oxford, students at Rutgers can communicate, submit papers, review papers, students um, fly off to another state to play a basketball game, bring their computers with them, and are able to keep up such interactions then facilitated. I'm confident that we will see further developments in the availability and uses of technologies, especially for ensuring the identity and integrity of students enrolled via technology and the timeliness of feedback to students, as well as in terms of professional development for faculty and academic policies for course credits. United States President Obama, the Lumina Foundation, the Gates Foundation, and others have expressed goals for increased college attainment, which they usually link to international comparisons, such as the one Jay used, and economic competitiveness without any mention of education for more enlightened citizenship. The president and others are correct to advocate for more advanced education because the correlation between college attainment, unemployment rates, and national growth are strong. But to reach the president's goal, we will have to increase the number of people with at least some college by 50%. So if we know the forces for change and we know something about the history of American higher education, especially the visions and visionaries who started it on its way, uh, what is on the horizon? Uh, what do I hope for? If we look again at the variables of population, politics, and public investment that seemed to shape the earliest years of university growth in the United States, what might these variables suggest about the future? We certainly face issues of population, not as with the Northwest Ordinance and Land-Grant Act, the movement of populations to frontier territories, but how to provide education for advancement to populations of low-income, minority, and immigrant young people and adults, many of whom live in inner cities, but others of whom live in pockets of rural poverty. Given their educational backgrounds and lack of readiness for advanced education, it is unlikely that online learning will either appeal to them or benefit them without human contact. Yet their progress is a public responsibility and we have not formulated a response. We must acknowledge that these members of our society live in the conditions they inhabit and experience inadequate schools because of the lack of public investment in education, housing, nutritious food, and health care. These conditions are the result of public policies that more often than not benefit the wealthy 
and exacerbate the condition of the poor. In order for the United States to increase the rate of post-high school attainment, six principal actors must work in concert. First, our society must ensure that all young people enter school ready to learn, following a good night's sleep after studying in a quiet place and having a proper breakfast. And if that sounds familiar, that was President George H.W. Bush's school reform platform when he ran for president. We haven't gotten there yet. Second, the nation's schools from kindergarten through high school must ensure that all students learn to study and acquire the knowledge, skills, abilities, and values necessary to be active citizens as well as college and career ready. Third, state governments must adequately fund K-12 schools and public colleges and universities as well as need-based financial aid programs so that access and affordability represent promises fulfilled, not just slogans for a campaign. Fourth, the federal government must fund the Pell Grant program so that it covers the basic costs of a public university and make income-based loan repayment programs universal. Fifth, colleges and universities must not only be more cost-conscious but also ensure that institutional financial aid, even that which is provided through tuition discounting, is focused on the financially neediest students. And here's a bit of what I hope for. As part of their responsibilities, colleges should also distinguish between education and training. To me, education is about questions, what if, and not about how to. However, even education requires some skills development. In addition to the hard skills that one can think of, of, of reading and writing and calculating, students need to develop what are called soft skills, such as dip discipline, work habits, time management, self-discipline, teamwork, leadership, and community involvement through volunteerism. I think of this combination of a focus on questions in education and the development of skills and abilities as a liberating education, liberating students from their provincial origins, no matter their age, national origin, or station. They are no longer bound by the answers imposed by their culture, but in James Baldwin's phrase, they learn to see the questions hidden by the answers, the assumptions of their past. <clears throat> this is an education for a life of questioning, a life with purpose, an ethical education. And there is considerable evidence that employers want graduates with these kinds of attributes, not just particular skills like accounting, but with a broad set of skills and abilities with more emphasis on effective oral and written communication, critical thinking and reasoning in multiple settings, and the ability to be imaginative across cultural borders. One way to think about our role as higher educators and what we would hope for in the future is to reflect on the recent crises in finance, industry, and politics and ask what questions we have learned. A quick survey of the past several years would show that too many people in even sophisticated roles lack knowledge of history or historical analysis and did not have the personal or professional memory 
in which to place contemporary issues. So history is an essential subject, especially if we are to understand the different ways people know the truth and how they challenge assumptions and validate assertions. In the study of history as I define it, we learn about the world we meet, nature or science, the world we make, culture, and the systems by which we mediate between them, law, morality, and ethics. We learn about the past and present, science and technology, war and peace, poetry and prose. Without this broad background, we cannot distinguish Kant from Kant. Mm -hmm. Students also need to learn in context, whether through fieldwork, profession-based placements, or internships. The second area to develop is that of imagination. It seems clear in retrospect that even high-profile people confronted new problems without the ability to see connections between and among different variables, could not imagine, visualize, or forecast directions, could not approach issues with creativity. They had not developed the capacity to wonder, to inquire, to experience discovery, to look, see, and ask. These are the benefits of an education that liberates students from their provincial origins from prejudices masquerading as principles. They and we grow up in mostly isolated, two-generation monocultural communities and have little experience with those some think of as the other. They need to develop a global perspective. Finally, college and university presidents should do more to tell the important story of higher education's benefits to society as well as the individuals who live and vote in it. This form of risk management of the enterprise is as important as risk management for the campus. Without such efforts and public investments, we will see more downscaling of campuses and more mergers and, uh, and closures. These ad investments we educate, advocate are for the security of a democratic society, not expenses to be added and cut as the political winds dictate. If we do not prepare our children to be ready for school, if our public schools are not prepared to the fullest extent possible to ensure that all students are ready to learn, if our public schools, colleges, and universities are not adequately funded, if the federal government does not fund student aid adequately, if our academic leaders do not embrace a liberating education for all students, if our campus leaders do not support the central missions of our institutions and advocate for the support of student learning for life and not just for earning a living, we will further blunt these central instruments of democracy and witness the further decline in our nation. This is my love story about higher education. I have admiration and abundance for the policies supporting access, affordability, and accountability. I see anguish for what I see as violations of the basic public trust bestowed upon institutions when integrity is put to the side. And I have anxious anticipation for changes that bear great potential, not only for improvements in student access and learning, but also great potential for the destruction of essential elements of our educational system and society. Nevertheless, I believe that we can reclaim a culture of conscience and civil responsibility, of education for a purposeful life. For a university education is as much about that as it is about jobs and economic development. 
This is the good news of higher education. Perhaps Gordon Davies, a longtime head of the state of Virginia Council on Higher Education, said it best. Education is not a trivial business, a private good, or a dis discretionary expenditure. It is a deeply ethical undertaking at which we must succeed if we are to survive as a free people. Thank you.